Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I am Evan Jarvix. Next to me is... Santiago Ramones. Hello, Santiago. Thank you for having me have you. Thank you for having me have you as well. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is really cool. I, like, I'm excited that... You, 300 is, is not easy to do of anything. So No, it's yeah. not. It's not. Uh, yeah, so please take it away, co-host. <laughs> okay. Well, I first of all, um, this is the 300th episode of Bit Depth, which is huge. Congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> I... Uh, took some advice um, in preparation for this, which is to ignore episodes 100 and 200. Okay. So I have no idea what those may have uh, involved, um, but I hope that I don't uh, become too, I guess, I don't want to step on those toes. I'm going to try and make 300 real special. Um, so uh, naturally the first question is, holy cow, 300, how... How do you have the stamina to do this every week for so long? Yeah, so that is sheer stubbornness and willpower. So the it's like doing something because I feel like I have to. I just have this thing that is wrong with my brain where I just set something to myself and it's just like I have to follow this rule now and the rule is a podcast goes out every week. I've gotten a little bit lax with it occasionally so I've missed some weeks here and there but especially on the road to this thing I was like well this is the date that it has to come out so there has to be a podcast every week and whenever you put something out every week then there's definitely like uh, oh, there's this person I've been meaning to have on. So it's like, there's organization, there's lack of organization, but there's not a shortage of local interesting people to talk to. Everyone has a perspective on the things that I ask about on the podcast. And so it's not too difficult to get people on the podcast. I do have a recent rule where I, where I try to get local musicians on. And there's no shortage of good local musicians that are willing to have a deep conversation. So, yeah, it's just a matter of scheduling and making sure that everything gets put together enough every week. And the other convenient part is that I always record two at a time. And so I can be like, oh, crap, uh, I need a podcast for next week. So, hey, this person that I've been meaning to talk to is like, cool, I'm good for two weeks. And then I repeat that procrastination cycle again <laughs> until I reach 300 and then until I reach the next 100 and then we'll see how long this thing keeps going. It is kind of just a way of me perpetuating my existence into the rest of the digital landscape until it goes away. Right. <laughs> it. I, I, I like the two episode thing a lot. I think it's an interesting dynamic. I don't think it's procrastinating. It just strikes me as, you know, work smarter, not harder, you know? Um, so I like, I, but even then still like, you know, I, 
I don't have a podcast or anything, but I'm also a content creator. Um, I run a blog called Make Oklahoma Weirder. And I, if I had to do something every single week, I don't know that I would be able to do it so rigidly. Um, and that's just because it's like, how do you keep it from feeling like work? A lot of times it does feel like work. And especially because my day job now consists of editing podcasts. Editing my podcast feels like work. And a lot of times since I work from home, it is still work. And I'm doing it during the workday. I'm just doing a thing that doesn't make me money during the day. But I have to. The other interesting part about it, though, is that with a publication, you're kind of doing everything yourself. And I at least have the teamwork or the collaboration of having other people to talk to, having interesting people to bounce thoughts off of. Yes, I am still contributing to it. And yes, the questions that I ask are still unique to my podcast, but it's not always me putting something out every week. It is the collaboration of conversation between people. So uh, I'm not necessarily making an hour of content every week. We are making an hour of content every week, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. It's because content creation, as it's so often called, is something you have to like generate and manifest. Whereas conversations can just be totally organic. And it's just a matter of capturing it. It's like photography versus painting or something. Like it's still, there's still a craft to it, but the the skills are different. Yeah, it, it's, it has honed into a skill. Interviewing, and I'm sure you know as well, interviewing is definitely a skill that you learn over time. And yeah, six years ago, I didn't, know what that looked like and you do something enough times 300 hours of it maybe uh, <laughs> and you start getting kind of good at it and so yeah there is a skill as well to contacting people to making them comfortable enough to talk about the deepest parts of their lives and how they got to where they are and creating an environment that allows people to do so. There's, there's some skill involved in that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's also similar to improvising music. There are pathways that you can go down that might be interesting and you can see, you can read a person or at least I can read a person well enough to know, ooh, they have some insight on this. What can I pull out of that? And yeah, so it's, it is a skill as well, like making music. And, and it just so happens that I also do a lot of improvisatory music and conversational podcasts is also improvisor improvisatory music. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. Um, improvisation, contrary to how improv comedy may sometimes make it seem. <laughs> uh, it's a very, very useful skill. It's not just drawing random words out of a hat to entertain people. Like it's, it really changes how you interact with everything. Yeah. So 300 episodes, this gives me an opportunity to ask just 
kind of a question I've always had in general, and I feel like you'd have a really good answer for it. Really nice round numbers. Do they really mean anything? No, uh, we like tens because we have 10 fingers. We live our lives staring at these things. And so 10 seems like an important number to us. And so we live in a base 10 system. That is what creates our zero. But you could set it on seven. You could set it on five. You could set it on 13. And we would all exist. I mean, there's a, a, a like language or form of code called hexadecimal that uh, I believe it has 10 on the number six. So it's zero, one, two, three, four, five, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20. This is Santiago from the future coming in here to correct myself. Hexadecimal is base 16, not base six. And you can just do any base system on anything. But we like 10 because we have 10 fingers. <laughs> the concept of 10 doesn't really exist. Numbers are just numbers. We just put, we have to put a zero somewhere. And that's where we are. So because we live in this culture, the 300 is neat. And also Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> um, but yes. <laughs> so, gosh, there's, there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, That's what we're here for. <laughs> absolutely. So it's been 100 episodes since last time you've been interviewed. So what I'm just really interested... Have you noticed like since then, or really even just since starting, just by interviewing, having such a large sample size of people, what are some trends and changes of perspective that you have noticed? Yeah, I've definitely gotten more spiritual, whatever that means, which is that I used to have a more rigid view on specific things. And it's not that that rigidity has softened necessarily. It's more that it exists alongside a fluidity. And so I still don't believe in God, for example, since the last time on episode 200. But... I've become more open about different concepts of the meaning of God and what that can mean to different people and what that can mean for myself. But I also still don't believe in like the, the biblical God. So it's, I've, yeah, I've become less rigid in certain regards and it's more uh, having all of the different perspectives has reshaped the ways in which I can approach spirituality for myself and approach how I can empathize with others whenever they have beliefs different than my own and still being able and willing to go there with them and put myself in their shoes. Yeah. Wow. So I, I wonder, I mean, you obviously have been doing this for a while and have seen very measurable effects even uh, in your own personal viewpoints, which 
will naturally change every other aspect of your life. So outside of the podcast, how has the podcast influenced you or changed you? I am incapable of small talk. <laughs> there, did, you, did you used to be capable of small talk? The, <laughs> Z, Z is looking over here at me, he's shaking his head no. <laughs> so uh, it seems like no. I did used to work at Sprouts as a cashier. And so I kind of had to do small talk as a cashier, but it always really bothered me because there's also no way to not do small talk as a cashier because at some point, even if the conversation goes somewhere beyond the weather, all right, well, now we're done and you have already paid and get out of here, go to the next person. So I, I, I'm still incapable of small talk in that regard. So yeah, the, I, I have a little less like patience for an absence of nuance. And so the internet in its emphasis on hot takes and quick takes and things that just make it to where you can get sound bites of things is the opposite of what I'm going for, just as a being in the world that everything has nuance, everything has more to be explored. And if you settle on one thing, you're setting yourself up for failure. So yeah, I, more nuance all the time. It's great. <laughs> I think your podcast does an excellent job of that. Um, whenever you close out your podcast and you say that you want to help the world have deeper conversations, it, it really resonates. Um, and obviously a podcast is like, it's, there's so many podcasts, there's so much, it's like, and sometimes it's like, what, what can we do to have more, like better conversations? Like, what, do you have any advice on, you know, how to help remedy that? I mean, I think you set a really good example um, with, with bit depth, but I just... I struggle with it personally. Yeah. Something that I've learned about interviewing so many people is that a lot of people are willing to go there with you. The barriers that we have or that we think we have about, well, I can't talk about this right now or else the X social thing will happen is not actually there as much as we think it is. And so you are actually able to uh, sit down with your parents or something and be like, hey, you always said this whenever we were growing up, but I feel different about that now. What do you think? And if it does require a level of empathy from both people, but like everyone is pretty willing to go there if you are. And so when you set up this kind of environment of, yes, you can speak freely here. We can have deep conversations here. There's nothing too strange or deep that will push me away. Then we're all just capable of having these conversations all the time. And so the more that you do it, the easier it gets kind of with anything else. And so, yeah, 
just go there with anyone because, hey, maybe it's a long car trip and we can just get into the stuff because now we have the time to do it. Let's do it. Uh, maybe we're waiting in line for a concert or something and, you know, it's, it's going to be another hour before the, the show is on. Just pick a random person and be like, where did you grow up? What was your life like? Everyone, had, everyone knows something that you don't. Everyone has had an experience that you don't. And if you're willing to go there, they might be more willing to go there with you. Cool. I, I like that a lot. Um, gosh, I have a lot, of, a lot of curiosities that I'd love to pick your brain about. Uh, you mentioned before you, you tend to focus on, not necessarily focus, but you want to provide a space for local musicians, um, particularly OKC or just Oklahoma or what is a local musician to you? Yeah. So a local musician to me is people who are willing to drive to my house. <laughs> so, and I mean, that's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes people are willing to do a, a remote interview and, but it is more like I do enjoy having a face-to-face -face conversation. I like being able to see the person in front of me and, and read people's body language and stuff. But like, yeah, the, it's more about, I like having people in person. So local musicians are, you know, yeah, Tulsa can be included, but I'm also less likely to go to a show in Tulsa. And so I'm less likely to continue to be connected with people. <laughs> and, and that is actually something a little bit weird. I was talking to my wife about this is that I feel a little bit bad about some of the connections that I've established, but not been able to nourish just because time keeps going by and there's so many people to talk to and so many people doing interesting things that like, oh man, I had this artist on and we totally like gelled together, but I want to be able to hang out with them or jam with them or anything, but I'm still going and everyone's busy and everyone's doing their thing. So, I mean, uh, I like that with local musicians, we can go to each other's shows and be like, hey, remember this experience that we had together? This is significant. And so it, it can be a little bit more connected. And so, yeah, local musicians, as far as shows that are around me that I can go to specifically, I am bit depth. And so it, it does kind of revolve around me. But I mean, lately, I've been getting a lot of suggestions from actually you specifically. And it's, hey, let's get this person on. And like, if I'm interested in their stuff, or and if they seem accessible, then yeah, we can totally do it. And some really good connections have come out of that. Cool. And that, that kind of like, makes me think I know I've suggested a couple folks who are like in Tulsa. And now that I think about it, it's like, Oh, yeah, that's probably why they haven't been on yet. Because of that natural limitation. I'm I'm a pretty big believer in that idea of why local matters, because it is, it's, it's in person, it's face to face, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot, it's, it's real compared to a lot of other ways of interacting with people. Um, I guess on that same line of thought, musicians, do you feel like, um, do you feel like they're a little bit more equipped or inspired 
uh, to answer the kind of questions that you ask versus the lay person. Um, and I partially ask because I'm, I have some involvement in a little local podcast called Nobody's a Nobody. And it's very literally about just anybody. And they just talk about what their lives are. And sometimes, I mean, the host finds a way to make it interesting, but it's, it doesn't, it rarely gets as deep as your stuff. And I know part of that's the format, but if you just interviewed random people on the street, um, like, do you think you would get, I, I feel like we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but just the focus on musicians. I know it's because you have a background in music. It's a lot of the people that you know, but do you think there's also some element of it that's artists have certain perspectives on these things that are a little bit more elevated? Yes. So the, the experience of the artist or the creative uh, makes it to where we have to evaluate our lives in such a way that is not in the traditional order of things of like get hired by a corporation and then work for the rest of your life or you have kids and then die. But like we, <laughs> as creative specifically, we have made the decision to do something with our lives that doesn't necessarily lead to money. And that is a specific experience that not the lay person doesn't necessarily have to make a, a decision about. And so, yeah, to, to get to the point to where music is my life, you have to evaluate a lot of things, very important things, and to end up on the other side of that evaluation and still think, yeah, I still want to do music. You've gone through a lot of things or, or whatever, you know, music or art or comedy or whatever it might be. It's like, this is a difficult thing to live as. I'm still going to do it anyway. And that makes a different type of person, I think. And yeah, there, there's an openness to that, that like, we're going to have to do whatever it takes to live and still feel fulfilled about ourselves and our experience and our existence because to just get a corporate job and work there until we die is not enough for us. <laughs> that speaks a lot to me. <laughs> I, I have gone on record talking about just how much of a late bloomer I am in music because of the crippling self-doubt and I, there is like a lot of, you got to work through a lot of stuff. I mean, there's very few people who just come out of the womb, born a musician, and there's no questions about it. That's just what they're going to do. Yeah. And, and in some regards, you know, like, I don't know, I'm kind of angry at Jacob Collier, like not at like him specifically, but just the, the combination of things that were available in his life for him to exist as that person. And it's like, man, wouldn't it be nice to be raised by university level musicians and sing Bach chorales at, at the dinner table or something? Like, yeah, it would be nice. But like, you know, the rest of us also have to struggle. And so like, I, 
it's not that I dislike Jacob Collier. I'm I'm jealous of the circumstances that allowed him to exist. <laughs> I I get that too, honestly. I mean, there's a part of me that's really envious of like I mean, I again I've I've talked about this on record more so with the Praise Down podcast, which we've talked about before on my episode with you. But um like I just grew up super sheltered and didn't have any exposure to any music that was not just complete shill like mm -hmm. propaganda and like gosh so many formative years that I missed out on you know I repeatedly asked for a drum kit as a kid and I never took myself seriously enough for anybody else to take me seriously enough and so I always got toy instruments that I you know was well beyond the capabilities of playing with and like it's easy to feel envious of that but at the same time I mean, I feel like you just have to find the ways that that makes your perspective unique. And I feel like that's the way to go, I guess. Yeah. Hot off the presses. I just got a drum kit. Ooh. <laughs> like literally yesterday. Uh, thank you, Chase Hampton. Uh, yeah. The <laughs> it is not in my house. It is at my parents' house. It does not fit in my house. But I just got a drum kit. I'm very happy that I got a drum kit. <laughs> That's very serendipitous because I have not announced it, but I've been learning drums. Hey, there we go. <laughs> the world needs more drummers. It's the true. local scene needs more drummers. Everyone needs a drummer. Please play drums. <laughs> yeah, we got a drummer over here. Yeah. <laughs> so I... Just because you mentioned it and it's something that's on my mind, I did write it down. Um, we talked about the viability of being a musician commercially um, with any kind of degree of, I guess, not necessarily monetary success, but just just any way of, yeah, all that all that stuff. Um, since this is the 300th episode, it's a it's a timestamp for us. News was recently announced about Bandcamp being purchased by what are they called again? The Epic Games. That's right. Yeah. I just want to call them Fortnite. <laughs> that is probably like 70, 80% of Epic Games, but you know. <laughs> so I just, I don't know that you've talked about this on your podcast yet. Have you the just the the Bandcamp thing specifically? Yeah, um, I don't know. I think Epic Games. Uh, maybe not everyone around me knows this, but I'm a really big fan of video games. So I have. Uh, I, <laughs> there's many people in here that know that, but yeah, uh, I I know that Epic Games is not the kind of company that will run something like Bandcamp into the ground. They're not EA. They're not Activision. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they've been around for a long time. They happened to strike gold with Fortnite. That does not necessarily mean that the popularity of Fortnite means that Epic Games itself is a good or bad thing, but uh, we can honestly liken it to ourselves as musicians. If, if a TikTok or something that 
we do goes viral, it would be unwise to let that virality go unused. And so I'm not necessarily skeptical or worried about Epic Games' Bandcamp acquisition. Bandcamp seems to keep running exactly as it does. It doesn't hurt to have a little bit more infrastructure. It doesn't hurt to have Fortnite money behind you in order to continue to support very independent musicians. That's kind of cool. And the fact that Bandcamp is going to continue to exist for as long as Epic Games has money, which seems to be forever. So that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I figured you would have a perspective on that that was, as you say, nuanced compared to what I've seen on Twitter during that announcement. And I, I kind of share some of that too. I'm, I mean, I'm aware that, again, Fortnite is the big thing here. And like, you think of Fortnite and you think of, they don't have the best track record of music rights and musician rights um, that I've, I've heard some reports about. But at the same time, like, I hate the Bandcamp app. Like, I wish it was so much better. And it could be so much better. And I know, you know, any company that's got that much volume of work to deal with every single day, like, the revamping and infrastructure seems like such a colossal task. But boy, if we get a good Bandcamp app out of this, I would be very into it. So... If, if we don't have to use Spotify anymore, that'd be pretty neat. Yes. And that's, you know, back to Epic Games. I mean, uh, like part of their deal is uh, their, their uh, what do you call it? Their, their shop or whatever. Like it's, it's a direct competitor to Steam, whereas Steam was always the place. And it's like Spotify is the place. It's like, could we have a viable alternative? I don't know. Maybe. Bandcamp has always kind of been a viable alternative in the sense that it's available. Uh, whereas, I mean, it's not that people are constantly flocking to Bandcamp to buy Bloom or Soundbites. Uh, <laughs> but the it's there and it works. And it's like, hey, please, if you would like to give me some money, you can... And that's kind of all that we can do as musicians because we don't have the power to change the infrastructure of the music industry ourselves. I personally am not going to be reshaping the way that Spotify pays royalties to its artists anytime soon. So my stuff is on Bandcamp. My stuff is on Spotify. My stuff is everywhere. And that's the best that I can do. <laughs> We're all trying our best. Thinking about just the vast amount of music that is out there. Vast music. Like I've, I've heard it said that, um, I, f I forget, but basically my favorite album, like the album that would be my favorite album of all time is probably an album I will never hear. Like, how do you reckon with just the noise and the volume of everything? This is music, but it is also a business. And we do have to deal with that uncomfortable fact. I don't like the fact that capitalism has made the structure of society what it is, 
but we are here and we have to learn to survive within it. So the fact that, yes, there is so much music and some of it is good, the idea that the good stuff will make it to the surface is complete bullshit. There, you have to make an investment, whether it is money, whether it is time, whether it is networking or calling favors, whatever it is, you do have to make an investment in your music in order to get some sort of return. And so it's unfortunate that the greatest thing you will never hear is out there, but it's also kind of on that artist to try and get it to you. So yeah, it, it sucks. We're here. Uh, try your best. And uh, there's so many things available to us now that we can do. There is social media, there is communities around you, there is a local music scene, you can talk to people, you can get to know people. So you don't have to be a random zero plays on SoundCloud forever. You can go out, get to know people, make your music better, keep making it, uh, get to know photographers, get to know managers, get to know venues, get to know everyone and everything. And we can become part of the ecosystem. And one of the harder things about, at least from what I've seen about the Oklahoma music scene, and I'm not the authority on this and I don't know who is, but like we are here supporting each other as well as we can, but there's also the fact that if the populace, the layman outside of the music scene isn't paying attention to us, then we will only exist in our own sort of closed economy. And so we do have to reach outside of our circles in order to have some sort of foundation to where we can be heard and we can be recognized as, hey, look, Oklahoma makes music. What, what's going on? Like, yes, we're here. We've been here. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Paycom, let's, you know, have some music from local people, Chesapeake, Devon, whatever, like the giants that make Oklahoma what people know Oklahoma for, if they're not investing in our culture as well, then they're actually missing out on something really cool too. <laughs> I have so many thoughts about all that. I, I love that perspective though. Um, I, I mean, gosh, I don't know where to begin, but you mentioned that certain, certain big money uh, organizations essentially control the perspective on Oklahoma. Like I was thinking recently about how we had that whole rebrand with Imagine That and Oklahoma Tourism. And we're trying to break out of that whole Cowboys and Indians business. And like, you know, they're like, I'm down for breaking the stereotype, but they're only following the money. They're not actually like, there's a lot of really cool, unique stuff in Oklahoma, but until the money's there, it's like, you know, it's not 
something to be advertised in tourism things. And it's just kind of a bummer sometimes. Like it really does feel like kind of a closed economy, like you say. And um, last year, Make Oklahoma Weirder, which I'll just put a brief aside here. Um, if you're listening to this, you have no idea who I am, which I would not put past anyone because, you know, I've only been on this podcast once. Not a lot of people know me outside of that closed economy, but um, if you're a musician out there and you do need help with some of the stuff that you described, you know, there are resources and I am one of those resources. I run a music blog and at the very least, I'll give you pointers. I'll give you tips. Just message me. Just send me an email. Um, I'm here to help you. That said, um, we did some tabling events last year. Uh, as COVID was still kind of hanging on, you know, we masked up and went to some conventions and it was really interesting to break completely out of that music scene. We went to a horror convention. We went to a punk flea market. We went to a pop culture convention. Um, and we've set up on the sidewalk in Plaza district. Sometimes, uh, we've done cassette week two years now and just having to face the general populace like that, even if they are um, of a niche interest, like is really difficult. It's you have to break out of that bubble and realize you're not going to be accepted by hardly anybody, but you'll find a few who are worth it. And you become like a doorway for people. Yeah. That's part of the magic also of music. Um, something I've, I've said before is that your favorite artist was once a local artist. And so everyone that is your favorite started out somewhere. And if you're not looking around you to find those people that are making the stuff that is not only really cool that you've never heard of, but also really specific to the things going on around you, like that is something that an artist from New York or LA or Atlanta isn't going to do for you in the same way that someone around you that you can actually go to a show and talk to them in person. And like the people around you can be your favorite artists too. And that's a really cool thing. But yeah, we, like you're saying, whenever you reach out to the general populace, Again, uh, <laughs> the the stragglers that might actually like come your way from that can be that connection out of this closed economy. And those people can discover something about, again, that mind-blowing moment of, whoa, there's an Oklahoma music scene and people are making dope shit. <laughs> I kind of feel like I got to ask this one. We touched on it briefly. Um, capitalism. <laughs> I see you wincing over just the mention of it. Um, uh, there's some folks in my realm of awareness who are purists and believe that you cannot change capitalism from the inside. You can only destroy it from the outside. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I was talking to my parents about this. Uh, which is like nice. Everyone talk to your parents more. You can have nuanced conversations with them if they are open to it. 
uh, <laughs> we, we can try our best. Sometimes you can't, but like, <laughs> uh, that there are systems of economy and there are systems of power and they feed into each other, but they are not the same thing. So capitalism is not the same as a representative democracy. Although in the U.S. we have both of those things. Uh, but in China, communism and authoritarianism creates a specific combination, right? So that is more of a preface to say that like we can't just demonize a system just because of what we think that system is. There are things that come out of capitalism that benefit people. There are things that can come out of aspects of socialism and communism that can benefit people and that we can apply to our already existing systems to make them better. But that is not to say that like communism or socialism is just a bad thing in itself, but whenever it is applied with authoritarianism, it can... the uh, cause some problems anyways but maybe the problem is authoritarianism and not necessarily the the communism and so they have us so focused on socialism and communism that we don't know what fascism and authoritarianism is all of that to say that like we can have things change within a capitalist system slowly over time uh, there are other ways of making it happen rapidly, but I don't know of any pragmatic or uh, pacifist ways of making that happen. And so I don't know if we can seize the means of production without guillotining a few billionaires. I don't know. <laughs> and a lot of people do want to guillotine some billionaires. And as MLK said, the riot is the, uh, the language of the unheard. So there are things that we can and can't do. There's layers of survival and then thriving. And some of us will never reach the level of thriving. And that sucks. But we at least have some things that we can do in certain regards. There are certain good things that we ourselves can get out of capitalism that we are reaping the benefits of in that we are fortunate enough to exist in the United States. And the fact that we can obtain something like an iPhone, uh, without the actual cost of the labor and resources that it took to generate that device. Uh, we can't really exist outside of that slavery that produced it, but we, because of that, we at least have access to things like social media that allow us to change the perspective of hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people and that is a tool that can be good or bad, and we can utilize it to our benefit or we can utilize it to 
destroy each other and ourselves. I got somewhere with that, but yeah. Okay, no, that's there's, great. There's things. <laughs> so I don't want to make you too uncomfortable, but also that's why I'm here. Please. <laughs> with uh, discussing the state of affairs now and going forward, what are your thoughts on having children? Yeah, so uh, my wife is here. And uh, that is a decision that requires my wife. And so... Pop out. <laughs> uh, I do not have a womb, and therefore I am not the one responsible for that. That is for myself and children, right? So as far as other people goes... Uh, my wife and I were talking about this today. Uh, I read a couple books recently by Sayaka Murata. She is a Japanese author and does a lot of questioning of the social narrative regarding the requirement that other people have for us to have children. And if you are not fitting into that narrative, you will be socially chastised and exiled until you do get married and have children. Why do we have to do that? I don't know. There are a lot of people on the planet. You don't have to make more of them. If you want to, you can. And that is a decision between you and your partner. But... Don't force that on other people. Maybe motherhood or fatherhood is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Congratulations for you. That doesn't mean that you have the right to impose that on me or pressure anyone else around you and tell them that you must get married, you must have children, because that is not your life. It is someone else's. And the more that we exile weirdos of our world, the more likely they are to go into the deeper recesses of human depravity because they feel like they have no other options. And so uh, I can't say I recommend the book Earthlings by Sayaka Murata because it is a vile, disgusting, awful thing. It was great. Eight out of ten. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it, it tackles a lot of that. And so that, that has been on my mind lately specifically because I just read that book. But, like, the more that we push people away in society, the more likely they are to do awful things in the dark. And maybe we can, uh, what's, what's the phrase? You catch more flies with honey. So let's be nicer to each other and accept that other people's bodies are their own and they are the ones to make that decision for themselves with their bodies and what they're going to do with it for nine months. Yeah. <laughs> you tread on some territory there that this is definitely not a question that I wrote down. <laughs> it's not one that I want to ask at all. Okay. But in the spirit of bit depth and having deep conversations with nuance, 
you talk about excising people. Um, should we show more grace to child predators? Yes. <laughs> so uh, it, he's laughing. We talked about this. Uh, <laughs> what I said earlier, the more that we push people away and drive them into the darkness, the more that they are going to do worse things uh, because they are being pushed away. And so if you give people no options, then they will either hurt themselves or they will hurt others. And so in regards with child predators, I don't have the answer to that, but a pure vilification of a person because of what is in their head and that you are no longer a human that deserves existing because of what appeared in your head, that may not generate good results. And this does get into the free will question. And so because I don't believe in free will, we should instead evaluate people based on, hey, what were the circumstances that got them to this point? What can we do to encourage certain behaviors that might benefit humanity and discourage certain, beha discourage certain behaviors that will not hurt others? So with regards to child predators, I don't think it's about shaming the person, but maybe we should have some things in place to help the people that don't actually want to do anything with those urges. And that might reduce the number of child predators, hopefully. I'm just a musician, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question. Potentially the most important question. Cookies or brownies? Cookies. Uh, <laughs> so this is uh, about the, like, uh, what is it? I forget, like, there's so many, like, classes of philosophy of, like, is it epistemology or ontology or deontology or whatever. The, the way in which we, like, classify things, I forget which one it is. But... Uh, because of the cake or pie question that is so prevalent in the podcast, uh, I've systematically broken down the things that fit into pie and fit into cake. And uh, it seems like cookies pretty much exist outside of that duality as far as desserts go. Brownies are probably a cake. <laughs> but I like cookies more than brownies. <laughs> uh, if I had done 300 episodes, I might have come up with a better duality than that. But I do what I can. Hot dog is a sandwich. <laughs> Sorry, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, cool. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, this concludes our portion of this. Um, and we're going to open this up to questions. Yeah. So uh, like we talked about earlier, you have the power to, if someone else brings up something that reminds you of a question that you wanted to ask, you can also 
ask another question before it goes out to the audience as well. So, but to start with, who came armed with questions? Would you like to raise your hand? I will feel the question. Hello. <laughs> no, you can just say it. I will say it into the mic. <laughs> yeah, so about my interest in video game composition and what my dream video game would be to work on. Yeah, so video games have greatly shaped how I create and perceive music and what background music means. I have not been able to work on any video games. Uh, the Like we were talking about how the music scene is very kind of closed off in a lot of regards. The film scene is very closed off and very rarely connects into the music scene, the video game scene even more so. So... It is very hard to, one, find people who make video games. P the type of people that make video games are the type of people to be inside all day making video games. And so they're not going to get out and network with a whole lot of people necessarily. But And so it turns out that most of the people who uh, do a lot of video game scoring are just the people who were around the developers. And those developers were like, quick, I need someone who makes music. You, I know you, you make music, right? It's like, yeah, I do. And so I was like, do a video game score. And they're like, okay, I'll try my best. And then that's how we got uh, Marty O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore doing the Halo soundtracks because they were around Bungie. And so it, it's how we got Darren Korb doing the music for Supergiant is because he knew uh, Amir Rao, I think, who is one of the heads of Supergiant Games. And so the... I really love video games. A lot of the stuff that I do regarding improvised music is involved in that kind of thing of having dynamically changing music that would sort of happen to shift with the situation that a player is in. And so that kind of informed a lot of the stuff that I was doing for my master's degree. But... No, I haven't gotten to do any video game scores, unfortunately. I would really love to. If you know anyone who is working on a video game, please send them my way. I have a lot of knowledge on this and nothing to do with it. So, <laughs> uh, dream video game though, um, sci-fi RPG or puzzle game. So, I mean, uh, while Portal 2 is not my favorite video game soundtrack, I think it's probably the master class of video game composition. I think that uh, Mike Moraski, who I guess is known on Spotify as Aperture Science Psychoacoustics Laboratory, Mike Moraski is the composer for uh, Valve, and he just used every element that he could integrate music to game and applied it in every which way in really creative ways that makes Portal 2 a masterclass in music composition. Whenever you are bouncing on that bouncy gel, there are music cues that happen. Whenever you are closer to the companion cube, a certain melody plays, which is the same melody that plays whenever all the turrets sing you as you're leaving uh, on the elevator. Uh, all these little things that are in the sound, whenever you're in a rat man den, you can hear his voice as you get closer to his drawings. All these sorts of things that like you can do in a video game that a music performance or a music 
track that you would stream on Spotify wouldn't do the same thing as if you were experiencing it in a video game. And that is really cool. Uh, but yeah, if you know any video games developers, let's send them my way. <laughs> I've actually got a follow-up to that. Um, so I do know someone who is working on a video game. I don't know that he'll ever finish it, but he would not be seeking someone to compose his game because he's going to do it himself because a lot of indie games the creators also handle the music and in my experience with indie games the quality varies a lot so what are your thoughts on outsourcing parts of your creative baby versus keeping it all yourself like i think of examples like in film you have uh, john carpenter where sometimes I'm like, there's just so, it's so thin, his music sometimes, but it's specifically what he wants and what his vision is. And it's like, I know somebody else could come in and do something totally different and more cinematic to me, but it wouldn't be his vision. Um, and naturally, John Carpenter's amazing and is making music now just as that's his primary thing, where it wasn't before, you know? So I just wonder if you have any thoughts on you know, outsourcing versus, you know, handling it yourself. Yeah. The, the creative process is a process of time and money and connections. Uh, like any, anything that you are creating, whether you're trying to have a podcast, whether you're trying to make a film, whether you're trying to make a video game, you can either do everything yourself and take 20 years to make it. You can, uh, know some people and call in some favors and have them do it for free. And you can outsource that in that way. Um, or you have money and you give it to someone else to do that for you. If you do not have the time to do it yourself. The other part is that who you choose is a part of that process. Uh, Hans Zimmer actually the way that he composes a lot of things sometimes is by picking specific musicians and getting them in a room and having them do something and that becomes the composition. And so the people that are in your network are also part of the creative process, knowing the people around you and knowing how this guitarist plays, knowing how this drummer plays, knowing how this bassist plays, and knowing that this project requires someone a little bit more that can do this. And so I'm going to choose this person. And if it was me doing it, then I would do it very differently. But I know and trust this person to do this thing specifically really well, which is why I'm going to them. And so it's good to reach out to other people and uh, know that what you're going to get whenever you have someone else involved in your creative process is something that you couldn't have done if you had done it yourself. What your goals are as a creative process, maybe that might be something else. And so if you are trying to develop a game and do everything yourself, because that's what you're going for as far as what your creative process is, then like, sure, you can do that. Uh, and that will make something really specific but it will also take a lot of time and you're going to put a lot of work on yourself. Um, but if you want to get someone else's input that maybe has some expertise that you don't, 
you can reach out to other people and you will make something that you never could have imagined because you are not in that person's head. And that's a really cool thing. That's why people make bands. <laughs> other questions? Hi, Z. Yeah, if my soundtrack were lent to a video game, what, would, what part of it would I be most excited about? I think the, the thing is, is that I'm not a programmer. I don't know programming language in that sort of way. And so I would be excited to collaborate with a programmer and determine what things can we do? What is the game doing? How can the music be influenced by that and vice versa? And so I, I think specifically because of the medium of video games, that is the most interesting part about working on a video game soundtrack is that when we are making something for the player and what the player is doing that is inherently dynamic, that is really exciting because we can do something that you couldn't do if you were just doing a film score. And so, yeah, I, I would be really excited to work with a programmer and be like, can I attach a sound in this track to whenever the player jumps? And it's like, yeah, totally. And so like, okay, how can we do that? And then figuring out the ways in which we can experiment with that and making, and whatever other parameter is that that's the freedom that the medium of video games specifically allows you to do as a musical creative. Yeah. <laughs> do I like Skyrim and when will I play Elden Ring? Uh, so the, the nuance involved in the, the whole Skyrim thing is that because music is very important to me as a composer, the composer of Skyrim, Jeremy Soule, is a accused rapist. Uh, and so... I am not someone that is able to separate art from the artist very well. And so I have a very hard time embracing the music of Elder Scrolls. Uh, and it's not just like a willy nilly allegation. There are many and you know, the whole Me Too thing is grounded in women actually sharing their experiences and we should listen to them. And so, yeah, the, it's a very difficult thing with Jeremy Soul. I mourn the loss of Elder Scrolls music in my playlists, but also there's lots of other good music that isn't made by ra by rapists, and so like I can enjoy that too. So, <laughs> right, sure, and so yeah, the, the from software stuff I'm sure is very good. Uh, as a person that is very busy, and I run my own business, and I'm always and never on the clock. So games that take a lot of time and effort and difficulty are, I'm very wary of picking up. And I know that I'm sure Elden Ring is a fantastic, beautiful work of art. And I'm sure all of the From Software games are fantastic, beautiful works of art. I don't have the time to invest into a wide sprawling open world experience that demands a lot of effort and fury. So, <laughs> uh, I really enjoy short indie experiences because I'm able to consume them in bite-sized bits of time over maybe 
short sessions over time. And those are the areas in which they are not limited by the constraints of a giant corporation. And so indie games do tend to make stuff that is more creatively fulfilling and inspiring for me as a composer. And being subject to the whims of a giant corporation like uh, Sony or something uh, makes it to where there are limitations to where it's like, you sure we can't have a guitar solo for the boss battle? It's like, no, that doesn't necessarily make sense in George Railroad Martin's world. So we can not have a guitar solo in the boss battle. <laughs> Thank you, Z. Thank you, Rob. Hi. People that I interviewed that I haven't gotten to work with musically, yes? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many people that I've had on that it's like a, a shame that I like can't remember all of them, but like actually I have <laughs> on my spreadsheet for the album that I'm working on right now, I have a list of like background vocals. And so specifically vocalists, I have just a bunch of people that I want to sing background vocals on every single one of my tracks. And so it, whether or not they want to be considered a feature on the tracks or whatever is up to them, but I definitely have a wish list of people that, man, I really want to get them to sing backup vocals. And, and because women in our music industry are usually not well represented, uh, most of them are women on that list. And so, uh, Keith Lee, Sierra Brooke, uh, Catlock, Labrys, uh, Neo Monet. Let's see. <laughs> I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me, but it, yeah, I mean, like these are uh, great artists uh, that I'm looking forward to working with. Some of them I have already asked. Some of them uh, I have not asked, and they would be surprised to hear this and be like, ooh, he wants me on his album. Cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I do want to use this album as a way of collaborating with a bunch of different artists. Something else that I'm going to do with that is that the last track on the album, uh, by way of inspiration from clipping, clipping usually ends each album with some sort of really strange experimental thing that is kind of an homage to other things. Uh, for example, on one of their albums, they played a piece. It is an actual piece called Piano Burning. And it is like a set of instructions as to taking an old piano and burning it and recording it. And that is the piece that is on the end of that clipping album. And so I wanted to do something kind of in regards to that of having the last track on the album being a thing kind of outside of myself. And so the idea is that once all of the tracks are recorded and mixed and everything, I'm going to hand all of the stems for all of the album to Chase Hampton, uh, Generation Lossless. And I want him to make a thing. I don't know what that thing is. I'm just going to hand it to him and be like, do with this what you will. And I'm excited to hear what comes out of that. But first, I have to make the album. <laughs> um, I just want to plug your discord real quick because you do have a channel in your discord now 
that is the work in progress of your album. Yes. Right. <laughs> I have not posted in that in a little bit. I have a tendency to like save a session and not like export a like work in progress file of that. And so the last thing that I worked on was actually what you heard me start this with, which is like the bit depth theme that uh, that will be the first track on the albums, how it will introduce the album. And yeah, I worked on that. I put some vocals on that. And so it's like the, I think episode 250 is whenever the theme of the podcast changed from the old version to this current version, which is way more composer, producer me throwing things at it to be like, hey, look, I also do these other things instead of just having a five-year-old guitar thing that I did forever ago. And so, yeah, the I didn't expect the bit depth theme to be so important over time. And it didn't originally have lyrics, but it has lyrics. And as you heard me sing at the beginning of this, the lyrics are make your story worth telling. And in the way that this podcast is having other people telling their own stories, I am also kind of telling stories in that album as well. Yeah. <laughs> but also, yes, I have a Discord server. If you go to SantiagoRamones.com slash Discord, that is my Discord server. And... uh yeah, it, we have deep conversations in there. Sometimes I forget I am bad at social media, but if you want to spark up a conversation, I will definitely type a freaking novel in there for you to read later if you are a lurker. <laughs> yeah, so I will repeat your question into the thing and the, the statements that you've been to other places uh, and that their music culture in like Texas or Washington, they get a lot of people coming into the music scene. They're involved in the music scene that aren't necessarily musicians themselves. And how can we get to that point? Uh, I don't necessarily know myself uh, as, as much as I try to be a beacon for the music scene as, as much as I can I also don't really get out much. I'm kind of a, an ambivert in that regard and that I enjoy talking to people, but I'm not really good at like crowd situations. And so I don't actually get out a whole lot. Uh, but I do really enjoy going to shows. Uh, I think that mm, everyone knows someone else, right? Like everyone's got a lot of connections. We got to have some people like, call in some favors or something <laughs> and just like get someone that like has some pull in whatever regard it is, is that like, I don't know what shapes like the culture of Oklahoma or Oklahoma city. I don't know what, where that perception comes from, but I feel like, you know, from what I can tell, it's like the stuff that's going on downtown with like scissor tail park or like, Devon Energy and Paycom and Chesapeake and all that sort of stuff. Like those are the things that I feel like are are what Oklahoma is seen as. And I don't know if other people have other perspectives on that, but like that's what I see from inside, outside looking in. Uh, and that if we were to legitimize ourselves in some way that like we can get involved in the things that like, normies consider things they know about, then 
we can all sort of become part of that. That like, and it there are little things percolating out of that. The uh, you know there are like billboards. I saw a billboard for like vibes, for example. Um, I forget where that. Uh, I think it was in Edmond vibes, the the concert series or something, but like, yeah, yeah. Um, The, the concert series where you have to pay to apply to play, by the way, it's a $25 application fee. Yeah, sure. Uh, There are opinions on that in this room as well. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, there, there are ways of like, you know, reaching out to people outside of the scene. And it kind of seems a little like scummy to like attach ourselves to like things that are legitimate, but like that is kind of also how we do it in lots of other places. If you have a TikTok go viral, like squeeze it for all it's worth, for real. Like <laughs> That's just how you do it in our current system. And so it's like, yeah, if you know someone uh, that like can help fund a lot of things from Paycom or something, then like, sure, get in on it and like get as many people in this community in on it. And so that like all of the people who don't know about the music scene, but all the people who do know about Paycom have eyes on that. We can become part of the thing. And so, yeah, it's, it's bridging that gap between what, the layperson knows and what we as the inside industry knows and getting ourselves out there in the areas that people are actually seeing. And so, I mean, we, we can only force people to come to shows so much. Uh, but like the, the rest of it is do like making it to where they actually want to. <laughs> and if, if, you know, something like Paycom is attached to it, then lots of people who don't know anything about the music scene would be more interested in it. And I don't like it, but that's the way I see it. Can I interject with a question? Sure. Follow up. So uh, <laughs> I, I follow the needle drop. I follow Anthony Fantano. Um, he has made multiple points about how conservatives generally do not make good music. (laughs) Fair point. Do you think that has some effect on why the lay person, Oklahoman, may not support our music scene? Yeah, uh, I think this is something that we talked about in the Discord, actually, but like that the music scene in Oklahoma exists in spite of Oklahoma rather than because of it. And we are kind of fighting an uphill battle for some sort of recognition, some sort of anything. And the, that might just have to be the way that we reach it. Like we just counterculture so hard that we exist so brightly that we cannot be ignored. Uh, (laughs) But like, yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know how many red-blooded Oklahomans will claim the Flaming Lips as, like, their favorite Oklahoma band, but, like, you know... <laughs> but, like, the... the <laughs> Sure, yeah, Ender, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, or like all American rejects, but like, yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, those entities exist in spite of Oklahoma as well. And uh, yeah, those entities also have the nine ton gorilla that is a major record label, but yeah, uh, we have to like force ourselves so hard <laughs> to be like, oh my God, we are undeniably here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, the weird thing about like music and marketing and all of that is that like marketing is kind of the bane of my existence. I... Uh, it is a paradox that I have a podcast because I am so not about promoting myself. <laughs> and I, I'm so like, please look at my music, but you don't have to. Like, it's okay. I know you have lots of other things to do with your time, but like also please listen to my music. I worked really hard on it. And <laughs> so I'm not necessarily the person to like go to about like, marketing and putting ourselves out there because I'm not very good at it. <laughs> Questions? Oh, yeah, you had a second question. Whoa. Okay, so the question is, the Blade Runner, in the Blade Runner universe, they have replicants. Do you think that the creation of replicants would solve the child predator problem? The thing is, is that once an entity is sentient and is able to provide or rescind consent, it is in the same situation as any other human is. And so replicants are people in the sense that they are sentient. They are beings that feel pain and experience things. And so we can't just make an underclass of people. We can just like reclassify them as not people, but you know, for all intents and purposes, they're people and just be like, yeah, we can do atrocities to them. That is not a nice thing. History will not look kindly upon you if you do that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's not use sentient beings for... Uh, tools of our depravity. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have learned that in history many, many times before. Uh, the third piece in my machinations concert thing is about uh, androids trying to escape Earth um, because they are treated as slaves. And so this is a story I've told already, actually. So, I mean, yeah... Um, as soon as an AI achieves sentience or a knowledge explosion, it becomes a person, it becomes an experiencer, and we need to treat that with a level of sanctity that we use for other people. Uh, I don't know what other ways in which uh, simulation can tackle that problem, of child predator, but uh, 
technology still has a long way to go before then. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> but are the child predators satisfied with that answer? <laughs> uh, other questions? <laughs> Yes. So, uh, yeah, you asked about how before I mentioned separating art from the artist and also giving or relating to and giving empathy to bad people and how that kind of connects. I think that we as a culture don't have a very good grasp on what forgiveness is, what punishment is, what the purpose of punishment is. And that's something that, you know, there should be more of a conversation about. I was on a podcast uh, about forgiveness. And so the thing about like canceling or something is that we're trying to hold people accountable, right? And we're trying to make sure that they know that their actions were wrong and that they do something to correct that behavior. But then if they do that, are we willing to forgive them? Are we willing to extend the benefit of the doubt or extend empathy and hear them out and see that maybe they did actually have a change of heart. Maybe now they understand what they did was wrong. Did they give a apology that you would forgive? And the thing is, is that forgiveness doesn't exist in the person that did the bad thing. Forgiveness exists and comes from the person who was wronged. And so it doesn't matter if a bad person never apologizes, you can still forgive them. So as far as how I feel about the like separating art from the artist is that the artists that I don't support are artists that are not, uh, understanding of what they did was and how it was wrong or they're not sorry, they're not uh, changing. And so I'm not willing to support that. And that's where sort of my death of an author might come from or where my uh, cancellation might come from. Uh, this is something that has come up before, but like, one of my favorite bands is Brand New. Um, and if you don't know about Brand New, uh, Brand New it, it was a emo pop punk band that uh, around the time of their first, second album, the lead singer of Brand New was soliciting underage teenage girls for nude pictures and like having, you know, sexting type conversations with them and generally uh, pretty scummy pedophilic behavior. Um, upon the release of their last album, the, the trouble surrounding those things resurfaced and they made a statement about the things that 
Jesse Lacey did. And he did talk about how like, yeah, this is something that I've been dealing with for a long time. I've gone to therapy. I've talked to my wife about it. I've done everything that I can to try to deal with this problem. And what can we as an audience do with that? So for me, that was a sufficient apology. I think he understands that what he did was wrong and he did the work to try and make sure that he was not that person anymore. So I forgive Jesse Lacey. I still have a hard time listening to their second album, which is around the time that that stuff was happening. Um, and there's a, a song on there that like kind of specifically is this thing. And it is very hard to like think about that because it very clearly relates to the things that he was doing. And so Brand New is still one of my favorite bands. I forgive Jesse Lacey. I have a hard time listening to Deja uh, because of that. Uh, the chorus in that song is, uh, I will lie awake, lie for fun, and fake the way I hold you, let you fall for every empty word I say. Yeah, that's really gross, and it sucks. But all of his music is about how I feel like I'm a terrible person, I feel like I am not worthy of getting to heaven. I feel like I'm not worthy of forgiveness. These are the demons that I'm dealing with all the time. And I don't know if I'm good enough. And that's like a theme consistent through all of their music. And if you as a person have never gone through any of those things, you have not really lived because all of us feel the, all of those things at some point in our lives. And this is something that we all relate to. And so to completely exclude a person because they have done some things in the past, but now know that those things were bad, then yeah, let's uh, see it in ourselves to be able to forgive them. Um, because if we don't, it will cause ourselves more harm. Um, so yeah, uh, I can't really listen to Jeremy Soule's music the composer for the Elder Scrolls games, because as soon as the stuff came out about his rapiness, he fled, he took himself off the internet, he said all this stuff isn't true, and just like disappeared. And that is not something that makes me think that these things are things that he didn't do. So uh, I have no reason to support that man. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, so have I noticed a change in the music that I have a preference towards since I started doing music to now. Yeah, a lot. Uh, I do want to make sure that I never become the curmudgeon that says all new music is garbage and all the music that people made when I was young was the best music. Uh, I think that is a very... Uh, I don't know what word to use for that kind of person, but like... Yeah, uh, I don't want to be that person. I want to try my best to continue absorbing new and interesting things. And yeah, there's always going to be the stuff that I listened to whenever I was young and first formulating my own opinions about music. Um, but like, and, and I can always go back to those things, but also there are cool and new things and there's always cool and new things that I'm learning about and interested in that shape 
who I am. And so, yeah, the, if you have not listened to the interview I did with Dr. Pants for his pants talk, it's on YouTube. Um, yeah, I listed some of my favorite albums on there and like Radiohead is still my favorite band. Brand new is still one of my favorite bands. Tool is one of my favorite bands. These are all things that I listened to whenever I was adolescent. And so those are the things that I grew up with. But there are things that I'm listening to now that inspire me way more. And it's interesting because it, it has changed with my education as a composer, as a producer, as a songwriter. And so all the stuff that I enjoyed in my adolescence is stuff that I appreciate as a songwriter and a player of music. Uh, whereas the stuff that draws me in now is more uh, kind of producer-based or creative-based. And so I love Sunlux, I love Ben Levin, I love clipping. And those are things that 14, 16-year-old Santiago wouldn't have known what to do with. But I'm glad that this Santiago really appreciates those things. And I'm happy to continue to pursue new and different things. Uh, I think something else about like my music education specifically is that because I've listened to so much traditional music, I've <laughs> gotten an appetite towards really weird shit. <laughs> uh, you, my wife, don't uh, hear me play a lot of that weird shit uh, because I try to be conscious about <laughs> what I'm listening to and then how it affects other people. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a harsh noise is really freaking cool. And like, I don't do a lot of that. If you listen to some of my live streams, it, it's gotten to that point in some regards. But uh, yeah, I love exploring those areas, but I'm always sort of uh, on the pendulum swing of how much of my music do I make accessible versus how much of my music do I experiment into things that I've never done before. Uh, and so what I'm listening to informs that and what I'm making is informs that as well. Yay. <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions or ideas? What's up? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. The free will question has come up. We thought we were done, but we're going to be here for 20 more minutes. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so you asked uh, about my religious beliefs and to explain my uh, view on free will. Free will, I will define free will from my understanding and then sort of explain as to why I don't believe in it. Free will is the belief that we are in control of our actions and we can make decisions freely uh, without influence from outside forces um, and we can just do that. I don't think so. <laughs> I believe that notion is an illusion. Every decision that we make is influenced by something. And we are not always conscious about those things that influence us. And so 
it, it could just be that like, I am hungry. And so I decided to get up and get food. And it's like, did you make that decision of your own free will or did your body make that decision for you? And we can kind of run in that circle all the way down, but sometimes it's not necessarily the point to dwell on the source of every decision. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever meditated, uh, specifically Vipassana meditation, which is trying to focus on the breath and anytime a thought arises in consciousness to acknowledge the thought and bring the focus back to the breath. If you've ever meditated, you will notice that thoughts just happen. You cannot will these thoughts into existence because they are just happening to you. They just come to you and you're like, oh yeah, I need to do this or man, my ankle kind of hurts or man, like all, all these sorts of things that are arising in consciousness. We don't really have control over that. And that's okay. <laughs> um, society uses the notion of free will to assign blame. And that has led to a great deal of suffering. So if someone steals, the way the society is currently structured it looks at them as a bad person. You should not steal. You deserve to go to jail because you broke this law. Instead, we should look at the circumstances that led this person to making this decision. What other factors contributed to that? Why were they without sufficient resources so that they were forced to steal and all the sorts of factors that can weigh into that. How can we create a society to where theft or murder or whatever else doesn't contribute to human flourishing? How can we create a society that discourages those behaviors and encourages better behaviors? And if we look at society in that way, regardless of the you did a bad thing, you are bad, we can actually better structure systems in a way that will be beneficial for everyone. And maybe less innocent people will be in jail. And maybe prisons can be, become rehabilitative. Is that the word? <laughs> um, and so I think the notion of you are bad is not helpful. Instead, uh, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we dislike and see why they would get there or how they had gotten there. And there is something like the equation of a specific person got them to that point. You may not like who Donald Trump is or what that man stands for. But if you were to watch the movie of his entire life, you would probably understand how he got there. That's not to say that 
he doesn't say or do or contribute to awful things, but instead of looking at a bad person and saying, you are bad, we can instead go, how can we reduce the amount of harm that this person can create in the world? And that can probably be a little bit more efficient and contribute to better things in society if we apply it to everyone. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I bring up free will often because it is foundational to the way that we look at the world. It's very difficult to restructure language in such a way that doesn't acknowledge free will instead of saying I chose to eat you like we'd have to restructure language to say like my body told me that I was hungry and so I was led to (laughs) getting up and eating and that is very difficult to restructure language in that way so instead let's just say I got up to eat It's, it's, it's fine and you don't have to challenge me on everything that I say because I don't believe in free will it's just the way language works I'm sorry (laughs) uh yeah um would it be fair to rephrase kind of what you just said regarding free will as everything is reactionary in a way um we are the result of our environment and our genes and that's about it um and just because the just because our genes and our environment are the things that influence us, it doesn't mean that we know all of those things in our environment or all of those things in our genes that create those decisions. Um, maybe it's a reaction. Sometimes it's also just like a biological thing that happens. Again, our, our genes. And so we we react to the environment, but the body also has influence as well. And so it's not even necessarily a reaction, but just more so the organism acts. The <laughs> um, Plants don't necessarily react to make a fruit, for example. It is, it, it does that. <laughs> uh, Would you say then things that, Everything is reactionary except for the things that simply are passive. I'm modifying this. Sure, sure. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Sure. Things are either passive or reactionary. Yeah. Uh, Whether or not it is beneficial to you to have that as a tenet of your life. You can decide on that, but like, (laughs) okay, I'm just, I'm interpreting your answer in a different way. Yeah. uh, And that's not necessarily a tenet of my life. Uh, I have three tenets to my life. (laughs) They are love never fails. It's going to be okay. And I might be wrong. And I suppose I might be wrong in a way is what fits into that, which is that whatever notions we have as to why we are making certain decisions, whether it is reactionary or passive, uh, it's all subject to change and we can learn something from it. 
<laughs> Sweet. Have we exhausted all of the curiosities that are present in the room? Probably not, but you know. <laughs> we got to the three tenets. I feel like that's a good place to close. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, should I like explain them <laughs> or should I just say them? Because it's, it's a whole. <laughs> it's your podcast. Ah, oh, geez. Uh, let me just do like a Spark Notes version. <laughs> Love never fails does come from the Bible. It is First uh, Corinthians thirteen four through eight. It is on this ring, uh, and that is because I was raised Catholic. And to me, love is the meaning of life. Life doesn't necessarily have a meaning uh, if you follow the teachings of Nisha, uh, God is dead and we have killed him. And so it is up to us to create meaning in our own lives. And so for me, love is that meaning. And whatever decisions I make, uh, yes, the free will language, uh, <laughs> whatever decisions I make are, I try to have this notion of love within them. And so is what I am doing based in love? How can I put more love into my behavior? Uh, and love doesn't necessarily mean that I am always friendly or forgiving or passive towards everyone and everything. Sometimes a friend needs love with a good smack over the head. Uh, <laughs> and we have to be wise as to where those situations are to make sure that we are listening well enough to see if that is actually what that friend needed. But yeah, so, and all of the three things influence each other. So Am I being loving in this situation? I might be wrong. I could be more loving. Maybe this is not love that I'm acting out on. Second is, it's going to be okay. The universe is vast and infinite. And the whole of existence as we know it is far beyond anything that we could ever comprehend and we are but a tiny blip in all of that. So any amount of suffering that we experience is temporary. And maybe everything will turn out horribly and then we will die and then it will be over and then the universe will keep going and that will be okay. The other extreme is you are the only you that has ever existed and that ever will exist as far as we know. You are a supremely unique being. You will only exist right here, right now for your lifetime. Everything that you do and make and influence on the people around you is the only time that this will ever happen. And you are the most important person in the universe. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, and so everything that you do uh, will be exactly what you are. 
and that will be okay. So kind of regardless, um, as bad as things get, it is going to be okay. And you can rest on that fact and realize that, man, stuff sucks right now, but eventually it'll stabilize. It'll be all right. Um, and that has brought me a great deal of comfort in situations with a great deal of anxiety and stress. So, yay. <laughs> and then I might be wrong is the, uh, the ability to shift with the tides and acknowledge that I don't know everything and that we can never know everything and that's okay. Uh, <laughs> but I recently read Parable of the Sower uh, because Elector reminded me that it was a book that I was interested in. And uh, it turns out that I've been a follower of Earthseed before I even knew what Earthseed was. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but God is change according to Earthseed. And uh, if you don't know about Parable of the Sower, you can go to godischange.org and that will give you all of the books of the living. Um, <laughs> but yeah, God has changed. The more that we adapt to those changes and accept those changes, the better we will survive. And hopefully we can thrive instead of uh, suffer. So let's not sit passively. Uh, let's try and learn and grow as people and be better human beings than we were yesterday. And that will hopefully make our own experience better. Hopefully it will make the experience of others better. Uh, and that will be okay. And you can add more love to that. They are always intertwined. They're always changing each other and influencing each other. And I have been trying for so long to find ways of disproving my three things and they keep coming back to each other. It is just the three. If anyone can challenge them, I would like you to try. I'm looking for it too because I might be wrong as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anything else to add to that or should we just close it out? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for being here. Thank you if you are listening to this in the future uh, for listening to this. Uh, for those of you that don't know, this venue provided their space uh, for free. This is a free event. But if you were going to give me money instead put it in that chest that is on that podium because that goes to the venue who is going to contribute to the greater Oklahoma music scene that we've talked so much about tonight. So uh, please give money and donations and adoration to Michaela over there uh, and or like buy some things from Beloved Bones uh, because, yeah, it's it's one of the parts of the ecosystem that makes this thing keep going. It's great. So thank you all. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.